Less than 10% of global plastic is recycled annually. In the U.S., the number is less than 6%. Plastic pollution has grown so severe that cottage industries have grown up in countries around the world fully dedicated to inventing new machines meant to collect plastics that clog our waterways, erode into our drinking water and food, and harm or kill animals across the globe. Despite this, global plastic production is expected to triple by 2060. In light of these facts, plastic recycling is often heralded, most commonly by plastic makers, as a solution to the problem. Here in Houston, we're a global leader for the petrochemical manufacturing facilities that help make plastics. So it's no surprise that the industry is also launching new plastic recycling initiatives here in town, among them the new Houston Recycling Collaboration, a partnership between the city and ExxonMobil meant to recycle all forms of plastic here in town. However, recent investigative reporting has called into question both how much this collaborative was recycling, as well as the environmental and health consequences related to plastic recycling. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative. And you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Okay, so today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Jennifer Hedaya, Executive Director of Air Alliance Houston, Brandy Deason, Climate Justice Coordinator at Air Alliance Houston, and <laughs> James Bruggers, uh, an investigative reporter at Inside Climate News. Uh, Jennifer, Brandy, James, uh, thank you so much for joining. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Uh, so, so just to start us off, um, James, you and some of your team were really the first to break these stories around the Houston Recycling Collaborative. So can you just start off by telling us a little about your work, how you came across the story, and what this Houston Recycling Collaborative is? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I'm a reporter based in Louisville, Kentucky, and, uh, and plastics is part of my beat. And so the last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time uh, reporting on uh, different aspects of the global plastics crisis. And one of them um, has been this issue of advanced recycling or chemical recycling, which um, you know we hear a lot of uh, when you uh, watch CNN at night and you can see the political advertising that comes from the industry and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so late last year, last year I, I, I ended up looking into um, a couple of proposals um, uh, one project actually was underway, but it was it was in Indiana, um, and uh, uh, I wanted to just see, you know, like is this working? Is this is this is this is this chemical recycling living up to the industry hype? And um, and then there was also some other proposals, and and I was finding actually that it it wasn't living up to the hype, or that it was really super controversial, and um, and that uh, some of these companies, these smaller companies that were proposing these things, that it was hard to tell whether their proposals were like real or not. Mm -hmm. And and then somewhere along the line, I heard about Houston's recycling collaboration. And I thought that, you know, if there's any place in the country that would be able to figure out how to do chemical recycling, um, it would be Houston. And if any company could figure it out, it would probably be ExxonMobil because of all of the chemical engineers that they no doubt, no doubt have there. Um, and so uh, so I don't know, I mean, it's just, I, I kind of knew that at some point I would have to 
come down <clears throat> to Houston and and visit. And <clears throat> and then along the way, I came across the uh, well all, throughout the last year and a half, I've been talking a lot with Jan Dell, who's an independent chemical engineer, part-time Houston resident, who founded the group The Last Beach Cleanup and. Mm -hmm. Um, and and she was encouraging me to also look into this program as well. So um, I can take a break right there. I, I can, if you want me to get more into the Houston um, well, we'll, collaboration, I can, but it's, if there's any. No, well, we'll get into that in a second. Um, yeah, uh, so Jen and, uh, and Brandy, can you just talk a little about first Air Alliance and what it is and how you're involved, but then... Um, how it is that you came across this as well and what your organization's been doing around the Houston Recycling Collaborative. Absolutely. So Air Alliance Houston has been working since the late 1980s on all kinds of issues related to the quality of our air. We are the longest running advocacy nonprofit with a singular focus on the public health impacts of air pollution. So for decades, we have been working to reduce industrial emissions, say from the fossil fuel industry up and down the ship channel. We've been trying to reduce tailpipe emissions from our highway sprawl across the region and working to reduce the uh, polluters that we call backyard polluters. They're the smaller polluters that might be in your neighborhood. You may not even know they're there, uh, such as concrete uh, batch plants, concrete crushers, metal recyclers, foundries, et cetera. So we obviously uh, are very aware of the major industrial polluters up and down the ship channel. And Jim mentioned one of those already, which is ExxonMobil. There's many others. There's about 50 very large industrial polluters along the ship channel that are responsible for most of the uh, direct public health impact of air pollution. And we knew that ExxonMobil in particular had has a large campus in the Baytown area. We call it a campus because there's multiple facilities in this one area and they produce a number of petrochemicals and refine a number of things. And it was about, um, wow, yeah, about a year ago that uh, a, another colleague that works in uh, the efforts to reduce the global plastic crisis, as Jim mentioned, her name is Judith Ank. She was a former EPA administrator, the founder of an organization called Beyond Plastics, reached out to me or we, we, we stumbled upon each other somewhere as it happens in the environmental justice world. And she said, hey, have you heard about what ExxonMobil is proposing there down there in Houston? And I said, well, ExxonMobil does a lot of things. Let me <laughs> let me go take a look at their campus that they have and their multiple facilities that they're doing. We had already heard that they were proposing some uh, carbon management hubs like carbon capture and utilization, potentially a hydrogen hub. We had already been watching what, what they were proposing in terms of uh, mitigating their climate impact. And then we started digging into it. And it was uh, truly, I have to give credit to Judith for raising my awareness of something at the time that was quite nascent, something that had been uh, under the radar screen, I think, in in the region as, a, as an air pollution concern and as an industry new direction. I started educating myself, started reading up. We started forming a group we call now the Coalition Against Chemical Recycling, asked a lot of questions tried to get information from ExxonMobil about what they were doing. And then lo and behold, we came across then the Houston Recycling Collaboration and worked very hard. It took us almost a year. We almost had to resort to legal action to even get a copy of the documents that set up the Houston Recycling Collaboration in the first place from the city of Houston. Jim got a lot closer to that than we ever did. And so now more and more has come out. And in the last year, the Houston Recycling Collaboration has 
uh, announced itself. It now has branding. It now has materials. It now has municipal drop-off sites where they truly are suggesting that if you bring your single-use plastics there, they will be now recycled through these quote-unquote advanced or chemical methods and that that will help reduce the global plastic crisis, which thanks to Jim and his colleagues and others we now know is absolutely a false solution. And Jim, yeah, maybe that's a, a good place to jump in and, and ask you to to tell this story a little bit, because I, I know for listeners who are, you know, who are new to this, who haven't encountered your work yet, probably they hear, you know, ooh, recycling, outstanding. You know, this is a, a great development. And already <laughs> we've heard advanced recycling and chemical recycling and some different terms around this. And Jen's already alluded to some of the air quality concerns that might be existing. But I, I'd really love to give you a chance to, to talk a little about your story and what you found when you actually followed up on what's getting recycled and where this is going and, and how this uh, collaborative is, is unfolding. Yeah, sure. So first of all, I mean, there's really like a couple of kinds of recycling, plastics recycling. There's mechanical recycling, and then there's like everything else that might be called advanced recycling, which is really sort of an industry term. And like almost virtually all recycling that happens is mechanical recycling. And, and what, what that, is that exactly? Okay, so mechanical Breaking recycling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's the professor in me who always asks students oh. to define things. <laughs> what what is yeah. mechanical recycling? Well, that that's uh, you know it's like you it starts with we put our plastics in the recycled bins or we drop them mm -hmm. off someplace and they go to a, some kind of a, like a um, what they call a MRF. It's a material I forget what that is, but it's it's a sorting facility. And um, and then then they'll go to another place. The plastics will go to another place, and they'll be maybe cleaned and chopped up and shredded, and they mm. might go someplace else where they'll be kind of like remolded <laughs> into some other product. So um, you know, uh, 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 the the food packaging or or something might end up getting turned into a park bench or, or who knows, maybe the fleece, some uh, a, ten a tennis shoe, a tennis shoe now, apparently. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I will already flag. This is yeah. way more advanced than I realized it was. This is not what I was expecting. <laughs> and that's just the mechanical recycling. Right. The advanced recycling is really a sort of a industry term that is used to describe like the sort of lump in together a whole bunch of potential, a whole bunch of um, like, um, like chemical type technologies that um, are designed that are hopefully designed they're, they're, that will hopefully be able to take certain types of plastics and then reduce them to their their um, you know their basic chemical constituents the molecules that go into you know basically the raw materials that go into making mm -hmm. plastic and then you make new you, you hypothetically make new plastic with those materials. So what we're largely talking about, what I've looked into mostly is something called pyrolysis, which is an old technology, centuries old. But in this case, these mixed waste plastics, these consumer plastics go in and uh, and they're, they're, um, um, they're heated up without very high temperatures, without oxygen, or maybe just a little bit of oxygen. And they're turned into like, there's, there's uh, like, uh, basically a gas and then also um, like a like a synthetic crude oil, a pie oil, they kind of call it, and the X the Exxon um, facility uses some sort of method that's uh, that's along the pyrolysis pyrolysis um, kind of process. But anyway, um, so uh, what we were curious about with this Houston recycling collaboration is that there was just all this marketing material which made it seem as though 
the um, what people were dropping off and and then there they could drop off like all plastics all number one through seven and put them in a plastic bag and 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 then they were it was highly i mean if you look carefully at what they say sometimes they were really careful about what how they actually phrased their um uh, you know the wording of their promotional materials but you, it was hard people we talked to assumed that this material was getting recycled assumed that it was all going to to uh, you know to the exxon Mobil baytown facility and so um and that's certainly what jan dell came across last year earlier this year, I mean, and uh, and she started putting these Apple tracker tags, air tags into plastic that she was then um, leaving uh, in Kingwood, where one of these um, all plastic recycling um, drop-off locations is located at. And then there was another one, I believe, in North Houston. And so I was, you know, talking with her through the summer and into the fall, and they were all going to the same, all the plastic was getting dropped to the same place. And it turns out it was just a like a, um, a small waste management business in West Houston, where it was just piled up outdoors in you know your your um, very hot summer, um, just kind of stacked up against the fence and large pile. And that's where it's being stay. That's where it's being kept. And um, and the recycling collaboration is supposed to. They announced when they announced this like a year ago, there was going to be this um, hundred million dollar um, high-tech sorting facility that would be able to see the plastics are made with thousands of different chemicals and um, and there's there, so that it's really difficult to do the recycling think of it this way so if you're a, if you're a, um, a bakery and you want to make um, like German chocolate cake or something you want to have the exact same ingredients every time you're going to make that mm -hmm. cake and otherwise you're not going to, you know, if you have all different kinds of ingredients, you're not going to have a German chocolate cake. And it, you know, it might be something that's like totally inedible. So, so anyway, um, so that's that th we, we found that this, this hundred million dollar high tech sorting facility was not even, um, I mean, there wasn't a site yet chosen that was public, mm. uh, no final investment decision had been made on it. And so that, that deadline has now been pushed back. We're finding that this plastic uh, waste was not even getting to where people thought it was going. And so um, that became sort of the basis of the couple of stories that we did. If I could point a couple of things out about that, because I appreciate, Jim, you explaining the, the types of process in the start to finish. From the environmental impact perspective, there are actually multiple places where this kind of false solution of chemical recycling produces an impact to the environment. Mechanical recycling, as as Jim's explained it, in and of itself creates pollution. It emits particulate matter. I mean, that happens. When plastic sits in a landfill and starts to deteriorate, it also creates emissions and it becomes volatile. We have had multiple instances in the Houston area, including one just a few weeks ago, where facilities that are holding plastic have literally caught fire. Mm. They can be dangerous for the community. And because of the uh, lack of separation between industry and homes and the backyard polluters I spoke about, sometimes those fires can happen literally blocks from people's homes. I'm speaking from personal experience. The fire that happened a few weeks ago was a plastic recycling holding facility that caught fire mm -hmm. about half a mile from my personal home. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem too. Then if you actually do get to the quote unquote advanced recycling or chemical recycling process, which in our case, um, as Jim's 
investigation showed the plastics weren't actually getting there, but let's say they do get there, then the heating process, whether it's with ambient heat or some other heating source where the plastics are broken down, as Jim said, plastic is made up of many, many chemicals. And when you break that down, what happens is there are emissions that come out of that breaking down mm -hmm. process. And in Study after study across the country, um, though that breaking down process of the plastic through the ambient heating has been shown to emit carcinogens into the air, mm -hmm. and those are are products that are known to cause cancer. So you're looking at your benzenes, your butadienes, your other your formaldehydes, dioxins, dioxins. Yes. So um, add to that. Uh, the environmental justice considerations, including where ExxonMobil is located, including where other facilities are located that are claiming to be adopting this technology, Lionel Bissell and some others, they are all located in Houston and Harris County's environmental justice neighborhoods. And by that, I mean neighborhoods who are uh, predominantly people of color, people of lower wealth, whose land and communities have been under-resourced and devalued by uh, racist practices like redlining, which many of your listeners are probably familiar with, which have relegated people of color and lower wealth to areas that are surrounded and inundated repeatedly by multiple sources of industry and air pollution and other environmental degradation. So here we have multiple points in this process where plastic is producing a harm to the environment. It's happening in the Houston-Harris County area consistently in the same communities that are already inundated by air pollution. Mm -hmm. And then when you take a, 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 swooped out ver a swooped out view, a 30,000, a 50,000 foot view, what we're also seeing is simply a, a false solution to a crisis that ultimately ends up producing more plastic. So mm -hmm. this isn't about reducing plastic reliance. It's our fossil fuel industry saying we have this this novel solution, keep using your plastic, we'll simply do all these things to it, which as Jim's investigation showed are actually not what's happening. And in, along the way, we're going to make more pollution. And along the way, we're just going to keep producing plastic. And that sustains an industry that we know, at least here in the Houston Harris County and other areas like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, in the Ohio River Valley, Appalachia, Southern California is continuing to uh, sicken and and uh, result in early mortality for communities. Mm -hmm. So I think there's <laughs> just to, to to take a step back for a moment. We just that was a, a lot of information, Sorry about really that. important. <laughs> but just for we, the... we have a tendency to connect all the dots at once. Okay, <laughs> that's wonderful. I I am also going to pull us back a little bit and walk through some of this because I think it. what you're Great. really talking about is two Let's stories. Peel apart the onion. One one of these, which I think you just really well laid out the claim for, is there is there are distinct environmental harms, particularly environmental health harms attached to how we're thinking about this recycling, that recycling is not as simple a process as we're thinking about it. It's, mm -hmm. it's far more complex. It has a lot more complex environmental effects in that process when we're mm -hmm. talking about breaking down things that, as Jim was pointing out, are not the kind of normal numbers that we see on a plastic recycling, you know, intake center, but the, these are things that we're really, you know, doing at a very high level that involve all kinds of other chemical processes that release these chemicals. So there's this environmental, environmental health piece. The other piece that I actually want to focus on for a minute, though, is the fact that what we're being told is happening doesn't actually seem to be happening. Right. Yeah. Which is seems to be a pattern with some of these industries. I'll just put that side note in. Okay. I mean, and so yeah. So I mean. And, yeah, and that, and that that was a large focus of what we were trying to do at Inside Climate News as well. And so, like for example, um, you know, uh, Exxon will say that for every thousand tons of plastic waste that it processes, 
at their um, advanced recycling um, facility there that it will result in a decrease of 19% to 49% in greenhouse gas emissions. When you compare that to like plastic that would be generated from fossil fuel-based um, feedstocks. Well, okay, so how do you check that? Well, you need to get, you need to see the report that they that they did, mm -hmm. a life cycle analysis of those emissions claims, and they're not making that public. So there's no way for the public, there's no way for, for anyone like me to be able to like, like see that report, look at it, take it to other independent experts, see what they say, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, um, you know, so that's just like one problem with their climate claims. And, uh, and they'll say that, okay, and then there's like the technology itself and how much of that, pla you have like so many tons of plastic waste comes into their process. So how much actual plastic, um, new plastic can be made from a process, that, that from that particular process. And they'll say, they said 90% of the processed plastic waste that comes into their Baytown operation is turned into quote, the same basic molecules used today to make a range of products. Well, that's a very general expression. And they did acknowledge that those products include transportation fuel, for example. And Jan Dell, who's you know uh, a chemical engineer, went through all kinds of calculations based on what she could figure out, uh, including looking at their patents that they had uh, for the for their their, um, their their process there, and determined that like the most possible new plastic that could be made from this is maybe 25% or less of what comes in. That's the most, that's the most kind of new plastic that you could get from all of the waste from the, uh, that's like a, like a volume thing. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's um, also an, an interesting kind of lawyerly phrase and can be turned into chemicals that make products, which is not the same as saying are making products. Like yeah. we can turn a lot yeah. of things into a lot of chemicals. It doesn't mean it's going anywhere. Right? Well, and so, and if you're, if, if a bunch of it is being burned as fuel, um, mm -hmm. I mean, earlier this year, the EPA and its draft national strategy to prevent plastic um, pollution, uh, you know, kind of reaffirmed that it doesn't consider plastic waste to fuels or energy production to be recycling. Mm. And a lot of this, oh, and then also um, this, just generally speaking, this pyrolysis technology, which we talked about before, there was a National Renewable Energy Lab paper uh, that came out earlier in the year that found that only like one to 14% of the plastic that goes through pyrolysis um, can be actually retained as plastic. And so they don't they didn't even consider pyrolysis to be what would be called a circular or closed loop system. Mm -hmm. And yet this is all kind of like veiled in this circular economy um, language. and and then it becomes there's this question of like what's driving all that? We can get to the end of that as well. but then it becomes like how do you actually you have they'll have to measure this. And it's like if you're doing mechanical recycling, you can actually kind of track the physically track the plastic particles as they go from from what's you know what comes into the their their factory that does the recycling into whatever new products but with chemical recycling or advanced recycling they have to use accounting procedures that then open up the possibility for um just a lot of mistrust and that sort of thing unless you can have a you know like a really trustworthy third party um, certification system, which from my understanding, there really isn't one yet for this for this new technology. So well, and to the point of trust, that's something that I want to turn to all of us to, to thinking about a little bit is is the community buy in for this. And I want to get to community reactions to this plant, but also just the fact that 
this is a partnership with the city, right? Mm -hmm. This says, you know, city, I, I don't really understand, and I would love for, for you to, to help me understand this a little better, but what is the city's relationship in with this? Because when we when we look through the materials that are coming out at City of Houston, Lydendale, Basel, ExxonMobil, uh, you know, these, these various companies, what is the city's role and, and what are they doing to ensure that this is actually what it says it is? I wish I could speak to the city's role in assuring the uh, accuracy of the claims. I, I can't mm. answer that. I'm not sure any of us can answer that. But I think the answer to the first part of the question, which is the motivation for the city to engage in this relationship, is to look back at the fact that, yes, the city of Houston um, did release a climate action plan a few years ago and has been attempting to put itself on the map nationally for being a leader in climate action at a municipal level. And so we have had a climate action plan for the city of Houston for several years now. Interestingly, this technology wasn't even being talked about when that climate action plan was initially put together, but it has been folded into uh, the city's efforts around sustainability and resilience and resilience and uh, reducing the impacts of climate, and even uh, to the extent that this year at the City of Houston's annual Earth Day event, there was a panel about this technology. About They didn't call it the Houston Recycling Collaboration, but it featured some of the same names that we've been talking about here today as part of an example, a showcase, if you will, of how the city is leading and encouraging and mobilizing and all of uh, community response to climate related issues, plastic being one of them. So I think it, the motivation, um, I think is pretty simple in that the city, it, I, I, to give credit where credit is due, I think our current administration uh, compared to prior administrations has recognized that it needs to take action on climate. That is a good thing. That's good. Uh, the county is in the same process right now as well. I think those are good things. We can all agree that we need our municipalities to have strong climate solutions. The challenge here is that uh, this appears in many ways or appeared at the time on its surface to be a solution. Mm -hmm. And as Jim has explained, and as more research has done, it really is a very not well understood or tested technology in the way that it's being presented. And now we're learning more and more about it. And um, unfortunately, I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a disappointment for all involved. But I, I think to your first question, the motivation is the city wants to make change on climate. That's laudable. But beyond, yeah. beyond just the motivation, I'm curious if any of you could speak, and maybe not, maybe we don't know well enough, but I, I'm curious about what is the nature of this partnership? Is the city of Houston sure. funding? Is it so, just No, it's, okay. it's um. It's a memorandum of understanding okay. that established the collaboration between the partners and some of the partners entered into the collaboration without even having a physical facility, mm -hmm. <laughs> hadn't even been built yet. Uh, the facility that Lyondell is uh, proposing to be part of this collaboration is their legacy refinery in the city of Houston uh, along the ship channel, very close to the city of Pasadena border. It's a legacy refinery, meaning it's been in operation for well over a hundred years. And they had announced they wanted to, uh, they wanted to transition it. They wanted to decom sorry, decommission it. Okay. Now there's conversation about transitioning it over into a quote unquote new technology, a chemical or advanced recycling facility, or maybe even a hydrogen hub. There's mm -hmm. a little bit of controversy now about what they plan to do with that facility. So the memorandum of understanding, it is, it is just that it's a it's a it's a signed document by all parties saying we form this collaboration 
as far as we know, I and I think as far as Jim's investigation could reveal, there has been no money that's exchanged hands. Okay. However, um, we we believe that this MOU and and its commitment by the parties, which includes one of the largest cities in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are what is Houston now? The fourth largest city in the, in the so country. So here we have the fourth largest city saying, on paper, we formed this how could it not be an endorsement of it? And we know and suspect that some of these uh, these companies are leveraging that in mm-hmm. other spaces and ways to potentially grow this technology, either here locally or in other parts of the country. So even though there's no funding, it's an MOU, it's not a contract, it still is a, a pretty significant um, endorsement of or, or, or show of faith in by, yeah, the fourth largest city. Mm-hmm. For a technology that you're pointing out, has some serious health consequences for folks, which is what I'd like to get into next, as I know all of you are in touch with um, with folks on the ground, folks who are you know directly impacted by this. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little about things that you've heard from community members, concerns that community members have, and, and concerns that maybe, maybe you should have for communities that could be impacted by this directly. Well, communities are already concerned because these people are known to be bad neighbors. Mm. Um, where the com- the public is concerned, they don't know a lot about chemical recycling or what that is. So that's going to be part of my job is to go in and talk to the community about that. But, you know, they're already concerned with a life expectancy that's 20 years lower than some of the wealthier areas because of the bad neighbors that live there and already pollute. Um, they are allowed to report their own emissions. And so they don't meet the standards, the national standards already. Um, So communities concern when they do know about that is why do I need one more source of air pollution in my neighborhood when I'm already disproportionately, you know, impacted by it? Yeah. And I I think, Jim, I think you spend a lot of time talking with community members as well. And I'm wondering, you know, in your in reporting, what were there particular stories that stood out or, or, you know, folks that you were talking to who, um, who are seeing this, who are concerned by it, who are, you know, how, how is that going in, in terms of your reporting and conversations with folks? Uh, so, yeah, the, the, generally it was just like the concern that I heard was that this was like one more potential layer of concern that they might have. It's a, a uncertainty over exactly what the process is. Um, uh, there's no way to to really tell like, how many, like, what kind of emissions are associated with uh, with this with this? Because they've apparently sort of embedded the um, <clears throat> this this particular advanced recycling facility into another permit. So it's it's difficult to be able to to you know they have question they have a lot of questions. I also found I also found you know at, at least one person who was willing to give Exxon Mobil you know a chance at explaining what they were doing because they thought, well, maybe, you know, recycling, finding a way to, to recycle this stuff and and uh, use less virgin fossil fuels might actually be a good thing. So so there was some willingness to um, to at least engage the company in some way. But generally it was just like, you know, there's a there's the burden already. And is this going to be just one more burden for us to have to deal with that other people in the in the area don't have to deal with? And I think that points to a question about just, you know, you've mentioned at various points, the difficulty of of getting information about this in this process. I know Air Alliance 
I think spent a year trying to get a hold of that uh, memorandum. So yeah, we we asked very nicely many times. Um, <laughs> uh, not just us, but uh, some national groups also were uh, attempted to obtain that information. Uh, we got so we got to the point where we were about to submit a Freedom of Information Act request, and we have, were engaging with uh, legal experts on how to obtain a copy of the document, and then we did get a copy of the document. And um, I think we were all surprised that what we got was in many ways such a benign document. Mm. <laughs> there, it, it felt like it was being protected at all costs as though it had, you know, proprietary secrets or, you know, what's the exact recipe of the pyrolysis soup they're making. And then that would become, no, it, as I said before, it was a very simple agreement among companies to form this collaboration. And there were some details about uh, who would speak on behalf of the collaboration. You know, the only the only explanation we were ever given through this process was that because there are so many members of the collaboration, all of them had to agree to uh, the sharing of the information. And that just took a long time. But, you know, that information is public information. This is a this is a public document um, entered into on behalf of municipality, on behalf of those of us who live in the city. And uh, we had felt from the beginning that it should have been more easily access accessible. But at the end of the day, there was really nothing terribly shocking about it. And so it does make you wonder. It's something I've wondered for my for myself. Why was it such a challenge to get access to? Um, perhaps because it does lay out. Uh, Again, that that endorsement to a, a system, to a technology, to programming that is not fully understood or known, and so there, there's the public commitment to it. There it is. It's it's written down and it's signed off on. Well, and I think that points to a you know this broader issue of trust, yeah. <laughs> this broader concern around what industry's relationship to to local communities looks like. And Jen, I I, I want to give you a little space here to talk about um or or Brandy as well. I, sure. I um something that, you know, I've I've heard you speak about in the past is when there is a chemical fire, it's often really, really difficult to actually know what's in the air, what's right. going out. And so I, I think for for listeners realizing that it's really difficult actually for people to know what some of these impacts are. We've talked about these potential environmental health consequences. Certainly we can point back to the uh, you know, pretty much countless fires that have, mm -hmm. have sprung up over decades around the ship channel. Um, but can you can you talk to us a little about, you know, if, if for someone who's perhaps a layman to this, it's a, a really natural inclination to say, okay, there was a fire. So like, what was in the air? Why don't I know exactly sure. what I was breathing in? Sure. Can you tell us about that? Well, there's, there's two different, I think there's two concerns here that make it challenging. We have a very complex regulatory environment in Texas, and that's not to suggest that it isn't complex everywhere, but um, our state regulator, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, has not created a system that is transparent or accessible to Houstonians in or or Harris Countyans. Um, the, the regulatory system is complicated. The information about the regulatory system is also complex to access. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is the regulatory environment in Texas is such that we we allow industry benefit of the doubt. Mm. I'll just call it that. We say to industry, you know what you emitted. You can tell us what you emitted. You can self-report what you are doing. 
And uh, and when you make statements, for example, after a chemical disaster or fire that there is no harm to the community, there's no expectation or requirement to back that statement up. Mm -hmm. So we have a complex system where it's challenging to get information coupled with an environment that puts the burden of proof on the public Mm -hmm. and not the burden of proof on the industry that's responsible for the harm. So when there is a chemical disaster or fire, uh, industry themselves can, uh, are they have 24 hours to report the emissions from the event and it's self-reported emissions. There, there is air monitoring in some cases. Um, most facilities do have to perform their own literal fence line monitoring for their facility. Generally speaking, though, the permitting that outlines those requirements is also pretty relaxed. It's not as rigorous as as communities would need or would like. And sometimes there is a monitoring after an event of that nature by our regulatory agencies, perhaps by the county, sometimes by the state, sometimes by the EPA even. There are challenges with when that happens. Um, It's very difficult to monitor the air in real time, especially when it is an active disaster. I mean, we would never want anyone to go into that situation, even if they're trying to monitor air quality. So there Mm -hmm. are some delays. And so because of those delays, regulators tend to rely on industry to self-report. And it's not in the industry's self-interest to report emissions beyond their permit limits. It's not in their self-interest to tell the public that there was danger to the community or harm to the air, because then that opens them up to litigation and and legal responsibility. So Mm -hmm. those those two elements together make it very challenging for the public to know what's being emitted. It makes it challenging for nonprofit organizations like ours who are dedicated to to transparency and environmental impacts, to empowering community to advocate for their health. It's hard for us to get the information we need so that community feels knowledgeable and can take action to protect their health. Brandy, I heard you earlier and you were talking and one of the things that you pointed out is that, well, to quote you, <laughs> plastic recycling doesn't work. Um, so, so can you talk a little more about what you meant by that and and, and what is the efficacy of, of plastic recycling? Okay, sure, sure. So um, we've only ever been able to recycle about 10% of plastics and that we're talking like 40 years we've had to- That's globally improve- too, right? Globally, that's right. It's even less in the United States. It's somewhere between four and six percent, depending upon which number you look at. The the resin numbers on the bottom that are surrounded by the chasing arrows of our plastics, um, to the consumer, it makes it look like everything is recyclable. And technically in a lab, it is. But economically, it's not viable. No one can make money off of those mixed plastics. So your ones and twos are pretty easy to sort and recycle, but the other numbers are much more difficult and time consuming um, and costly. And and how many numbers are there now? I feel like it's at least seven, right? Uh, Yes, I think we are up to seven. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So so it's like your ones and twos and sometimes fives can be recycled. Okay. (laughs) So it's, it, it's basically, it's just not affordable. It's still cheaper to produce new plastic. Um, even with this new advanced recycling that we're hearing about, that remains true, that this really just isn't economically viable or, or if, even if it is somewhat economically viable, it sounds like not realistically going to actually make much of a dent in this problem. Exactly. So 
they're, they're calling it advanced recycling, but a lot of these things have been around for decades already mm. and have already failed economically. Um, there, there have been some that they tried to open the first time that there was a plastics crisis in the public mm. and people really wanted to do something about plastics. So a lot of these mechanisms have been around now for decades and have never been economically viable as a business for someone to make money, um, which is why uh, even after shipping it overseas, like to China for many years, um, they were even unable to do anything with it. They wanted to manufacture plastics. So they took on our plastic. Well, in 2018, they stopped taking it because they just said, you know what, we have too much trash out of it that we can't recycle, we can't make money on. Um, and you know, and you can see the failure in plastics recycling over the decades. When you look at the the exponential growth of new plastic production, mm -hmm. if we were doing such a good job of recycling our plastics, why do we have exponential growth of new plastic production? Um, and when you look at the the plastics that they find in the ocean. A lot of those are coming from rivers and tributaries from Asian countries where we have shipped our plastics to mm. um, because companies do irresponsible things with the plastics that they can't make money on. And then the governments of those countries then have a huge problem on their hands of what to do with this waste. And unfortunately, a lot of people do um, unscrupulous things with their plastic waste that they can't make money from. And that's how it ends up that we find this plastic in the ocean that's coming from tributaries out of Asian countries that is not purchased in Asia. It's purchased in North America. And so some of that is what you're suggesting is, you know, we, we ship it over to, to foreign countries under the auspice this will be recycled. No, we're doing the right thing. We're recycling. And in reality, it's just joining into trash heaps or being incinerated maybe, or just leaking out into back into the world. Yeah. Like a lot of it's contaminated mm. um, and they just can't recycle it or it's too hard to sort. Right. And yeah, companies don't always do the right thing. Um, and, you know, they end up with a pile of trash on their hands that they don't know what to do with. So yeah, it, that's how we've ended up with this huge garbage issue in the ocean um, washing up on our beaches. Well, and that also points to the fact that half of our plastic has been produced since, I think, 2000 or something. I mean, it's you're right. astronomical that, yeah, that that growth that you're talking about, the acceleration. And exactly if if these recycling initiatives had been more impactful or, or more useful, then certainly some of that might be slower, but also we would just see larger numbers actually being recycled, something that is actually uh, quite, quite low. Exactly. Um, you know, we need more extended producer responsibility. Those that are producing the plastic should be responsible for then collecting it and dealing with it. They're really the only ones with the money to recycle those difficult mixed plastics. And they need to be doing it in a responsible way. I think the other thing is that we really have to reduce our single use plastics and mixed plastics because even when those things are recycled, as we know, they're they're leaking tox toxic chemicals um, mm -hmm. into the air, into the water, the microplastics are breaking down. So um, 
the recycling thing economically and environmentally really isn't ever going to solve the plastics crisis. That's and that's a fantastic point. And I think we're, we're definitely going to revisit uh, in the future as we continue to talk around plastics, these, these issues around exactly these forever chemicals that you're talking about, but also the single use plastics as a whole um, and, and this contribution to waste. So thanks. So let me ask, um, we, we've gone through this, you know, I think we've, we've certainly made plastics and recycling a bit more complex. We've, we've thought through uh, some of the environmental difficulties, we've talked through some of the difficulties just around, this is not actually seeming to be actually happening, but you know, as it goes forward, and I think it's safe to, to say that some versions of this are going forward, what should communities be doing? What should they be looking out for or worried about? Uh, are there ways that people can get involved uh, specifically around this uh, as, you, as you think through the various complexities that we've just laid out? Well, I would say one is, I mentioned it earlier, Air Alliance Houston and partners are uh, have come together uh, to have some collective impact through our Coalition Against Chemical Recycling. And that is an opportunity for residents or other groups to at least be part of identifying those solutions. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Join us. Of course, there is power in numbers and there is power in the diversity of ideas and thoughts and ways that we can affect change at all levels. So that's number one. Number two, um, Permits do have to be approved. There have to be permits issued for ExxonMobil, for Lyondell, for all of the facilities throughout Harris County that are emitting toxins into the air. And there are opportunities for community members to voice their concerns about permit applications. That's something that uh, Air Alliance Houston does. We have sibling nonprofits that work on water permits. Very often, the facility that's polluting our air is also polluting our water and oftentimes also our soil. And so they have to have permits to do that. And every one of those permits on some cadence must be renewed. And that mm -hmm. is an opportunity, especially for residents who are living at fence line, residents who can um, articulate a direct harm from those, those pollutants to raise their concerns and potentially move into a space called a contested case hearing where that could lead to uh, a finding of responsibility on the part of the polluter. So there are members of the public do have some rights when it comes to being impacted at fence line from these polluting facilities. So uh, being aware of permit opposition opportunities submitting those concerns in writing, coming to public meetings where they can share those concerns verbally, all of those can form the basis of a stronger permit, potentially a contested case hearing where a facility will be held responsible and accountable for the environmental harms that they're causing. Yeah, and, and I would add too, that was great, Jen, um, that we could also reach out to our local leaders and educate them on what we've learned um, about this issue and help them to make better decisions moving forward. I would say too, with especially the Houston Recycling Collaboration, you know, I would no, nothing is ever nothing is ever a certainty, <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, with the incredible investigative journalism that Jim has completed and everything else we are learning and raising awareness in the community, like what Brandy is doing. People are questioning this. And I think that um, if listeners feel compelled and passionate, I think one thing they can do is call the mayor's office. Mm. If they live in the city of Houston, call their council person, council person, say to them, you know, I heard about this and I have questions and I would like to know more. And I think we should be digging into this more mm. before we decide 
that the MOU should be extended, that the MOU should even continue, that any more of this uh, so-called advanced recycling, um, these so-called advanced recycling pr uh, processes should even continue to be endorsed as at city municipal drop-off sites. I mm -hmm. think there is there is advocacy here that can be done, especially for Houstonians that are concerned about the impact of the technology to their health. If I could, Weston, um, in addition to the the local issues and local concerns. I mean, this is all being driven by, um, you know, like the global economy and the global plastics economy in many ways. So Exxon is doing this, they say, because their customers, people that take the plastic pellets and turn them into, um, you know, uh, packaging and um, uh, plastic bottles or whatever, they want to be, they're being driven to, they want to be able to claim that they're using plastic with recycled content in order to meet consumer driven sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. And there's even states like California, Washington, New Jersey, and Maine that have passed laws that require, um, that, that are going to start requiring um, uh, 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 recycled content goals or targets. And then beyond, so and there's also push for national uh, for national legislation that will deal with plastics, and the wording of that will be very important. And and whether or not it it accepts chemical recycling or not is yet to be decided. And then beyond that, we just uh, there's the, the uh, like 170 countries are negotiating a global plastics treaty, and there could be some very important decisions that come out of that as well. And then just finally, just to get a scale here, uh, one of the things that um, I, I was working with uh, Terry Collins, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, and he calculated that ExxonMobil, which is, you know, like one of the largest plastics producers in the world, if not the largest, uh, they would need to build like more than 300 of these facilities with the capacity that, that Baytown has to process all of their plastic that they make at their plants around the world. And globally, it would be 10,000 of these facilities that would be needed to process all the plastic produced on the planet. So the scale is something that probably needs to be thought about as well. Now, I, I so appreciate that, especially the, the international and kind of global context there, Jim. Um, and it's, it's something that we're going to continue talking about. Next week, we have uh, an episode coming on. It's entirely about the petrochemical industry. We'll be doing some more really excellent conversations with Air Alliance, uh, focused on a variety of different plastic and waste related issues. Um, so I, I really appreciate that that global uh, side of this, and also the fact that it's, yeah, I mean it's it's not <laughs> ten thousand plants around the world just to to keep up with current production doesn't even <laughs> tap into what we've already managed to create over the last decades, which is pretty remarkable and immense. Um, so I, I we're we're coming to the end of our of our time here. I want to thank you all so much for being here. If, if there's anything else that you really need to get out, or if you'd like to tell us really quickly, maybe about ways that folks can get involved with Air Alliance, I'd love to give you a moment to, to talk on Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But uh, I also I know we're going to talk um, more in detail in a in a future show. Uh, but for someone who who isn't able to join, I also don't want anyone leaving feeling like there's really nothing as individual as you can do. Because mm -hmm. I will tell you, having having gone through a year of my own education around plastic and its impact, I've changed my own behaviors. And I Same. and that, at least in, in my way, I am reducing my own reliance on, on single-use plastics. And I think there are many, and I think to, to Jim's point about consumer demand, there is there is a sea change coming about yeah. how we, how we, what we expect of our 
of our corporations, what we expect of our products, what we expect of ourselves and our homes. And so I'm excited to talk more about how we can ourselves live a more sustainable lifestyle. And I think that's a, that's exciting uh, to see more and more of that um, happening here in Houston and across the country. Uh, how to get involved with Airlines Houston. Well, my my communications director would be very disappointed in me if I did not plug <laughs> our website. And so, yes, you can find us very easily at airlineshouston.org. We are on all the socials, every one of them that you can think of, and they are always Air Alliance H-O-U, Hugh. And you can find us. We are routinely posting information about how to get involved, how to take action. That, that permit hearing that's coming up, where should you go? What do you need to know about it? What are meetings you can come to? Where can you raise your voice? Where can you be an advocate for the health, for your for the health of your family and the health of your community? So following us, you can also sign up on our newsletter. That is often where we send out action alerts where we will share ways that people can become advocates and ensure that everyone has the right to breathe clean air in Houston and Harris County. Mm-hmm. Well, Jen, Brandy, uh, Jem, thank you so much for being here. Uh, just a, again, a quick shout out to airlineshouston.com is the website. .org. .org so is the website. <laughs> uh, and you can read Jim's uh, terrific reporting yes. at Inside Climate News yes. uh, and more about this. Uh, and I just want to thank you all so much for being here and talk, talk, <laughs> talking with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, I'd like to highlight a way you can get involved in the town this week, which is that the EPA will be holding a Gulf Coast Environmental Justice Discussion Group meet and greet. And this is part of a series of discussion groups that the EPA holds, uh, different areas around the country, different groups of people. Um, They've engaged with over 200 stakeholders in different parts of the country since they started doing this. And the Gulf Coast Environmental Justice Discussion Group is targeted towards the Gulf of Mexico specifically. And so there's an opportunity coming up on Thursday um, to meet with other folks uh, who are interested in EJ issues, but also to directly talk to the EPA about issues affecting your community, issues that are affecting Houston more broadly. And so this is a really important way to get involved in talking directly to the federal government about the issues that are facing us here in Houston. And you can meet with uh, the Gulf of Mexico development staff. You can meet with different folks from this discussion group and learn about what they're doing in environmental justice work. But also a lot of the upcoming EPA priorities that are really centered around uh, funds that have been opened up under the uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which has made available a lot of different monies, many of which will be coming to Houston um, to directly address some of these problems. So this meeting will take place on January 11th, which is Thursday, from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Um, it's at the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University. It's in McCoy Auditorium, room 114. And you can learn more on the EPA's website if you Google for uh, EPA Gulf Coast Environmental Justice Discussion Group. It'll pop right up. Uh, I would offer you the website, but it is long, <laughs> too long to, to read out. Um, and so really the easiest thing you can do is just is Google that EPA Gulf Coast Environmental Justice Discussion Group, um, and you can directly register for the meeting and get more details there. But this is a really important and, and I think valuable way to start getting involved if you're keen on addressing these issues, especially if you're interested in seeing um, what policies can directly affect us and how people can 
get involved and directly talk to their government officials, um, this is a really good opportunity to share some of what we've been discussing broadly around Houston and certainly what people on the ground know and, and experience in their lives. Um, so that'll be this Thursday, 630 to 8. Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University, uh, the McCoy Auditorium, Room 114, uh, and like I said, Google, EPA, Gulf Coast Environmental Justice Discussion Group. Finally, uh, a quick reminder that if you're enjoying Gulf Streams, please check out our podcast. Uh, you can listen to previous episodes anytime on your favorite podcast app. We also feature occasional bonus content only available through the podcast. So make sure to subscribe so you can keep up to date on all the news, stories, and ideas featured here on Gulf Streams. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we'll be continuing our discussion around the petrochemical uh, industry, uh, this time a little more focused on what that looks like globally as well as locally, and really thinking through some of the health impacts and some of the, the different aspects of living around the petrochemical belts of the world. Um, so make sure to tune in and, and learn more about what petrochemicals are, how they impact our health and environment, and what local advocates are doing around the world to push industry to be more responsible for their environmental actions actions. Uh, if you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and CNAN. Stay tuned for the RR show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM. <laughs>